I was really concerned about our child's environment. I was really concerned about where she was and how people might perceive her family structure and how she would be treated as the child of a same-sex couple. Being a minority individual myself, being a gay man, I know I've had my own experiences of being an other, being different, and I wanted to make sure that my child, our child, had everything set up so that she would be embraced and not be seen as different and being bombarded with questions that made her question her own family structure as being anything other than the norm. From Life Atelier Studio, it's real. Stories of adversity, resilience, creativity, and transformation. I'm Diane McDaniel, and on today's show, I'm speaking with spouses Richard Hoff and Skylar Haw, who are parents of a 10-year-old daughter. Richard and Skylar tell the story of the many logistics they worked out in order to bring their daughter into being, the consideration they put into the structure and dynamics of their family, and the environment in which their daughter is being raised. They also talk about the gender dynamics at play in their roles as two male parents and how their personal experiences of otherness has helped them to coach their daughter in understanding the social challenges of her hearing loss and wearing hearing aids. Welcome, Richard and Skylar. Thanks for coming in to talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. It's kind of interesting to be here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So I'd like for each of you to introduce yourselves and to tell us something that you'd like others to know about you. Skylar, you can go first. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Uh, <laughs> sure. My name is Skylar Ha, and I am a psychotherapist father to Summerin and husband to Richard. Oh, that was good. I think I'll copy that. I, my name is Richard Hoff, and I am a father, a husband, and my career in life has been international relief and development. So I guess, boom, 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 that's me. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I'd like for you guys to tell us about your family. Skylar and I will be together. We met 20 years ago this Christmas Eve. Like everybody else, we have our own story of our relationship. But after some years together, when we moved in, maybe five, six, seven years together, we started joking a little bit about having a child. And we had some uh, friends uh, gay friends who actually had children at that time, which was really, really novel. And I don't know, we decided that, you know, our relationship was really quite strong. We loved each other. We traveled a great deal together. Um, we had, you know, fun. We had a great set of friends. And we had a really good, happy relationship, I think. Yeah. I think we were at a stage in our life where we met, we were together five years, we filed for domestic partnership, we bought a house, we moved in together, and we thought, geez, how can we grow our relationship? How can we grow this love that we have for each other? Mm. And then the idea of a child came up for discussion in passing more so. So I think we had resigned ourselves to the belief that we're not going to have a child. There's just so much involved, and people... You gave up the idea a long time ago, I think, by just being gay mm -hmm. and seeing that there were a few friends around who were really at the forefront of having children and also having there be a surrogacy agency that worked primarily with gay families at the time. Uh, we talked about it, and I think it was a process that unfolded maybe over a three-year period. Right, I would say about three years. I'll also say that I'm older than Skylar, so being gay 
in the 80s, 90s, having a child was never really a possibility Mm -hmm. as far as certainly through surrogacy. And so at that time, there were several lesbian couples over the years that I was close friends with. And we had various conversations Mm -hmm. about, oh, you know, what about having, you know, a a child together? Mm. And, you know, for me, it sounded like the ideal world that I could be, you know, a father, but actually the role would be more like uncle. Mm -hmm. And so I would be close to the child, but not have all of those responsibilities because the child would live with the, the couple. And I would, you know, be in the child's life. You'd be the fun guy. I'd be the fun guy, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And without the responsibilities that I've learned come with parenthood. (laughs) Oh, boy. Lots of responsibilities. Right. Uh. (laughs) So then, like Skylar said, we started looking into the possibilities of whether it'd be adoption or uh, surrogacy. And the friends that we had had gone through surrogacy, and we knew the people at the surrogacy agency well, that actually, specialized yeah, in actually, gay adoption, couples. Adoption wasn't really a consideration in the initial stages of our discussions because for me, it was about how do we grow the love that we mm. have? And we feel so fortunate to have found each other, to have the life that we have. And the idea, because Richard was older and there was the age difference, I thought to myself, well, how lovely would it be to have a child that represented a part of one or both of us? And for me, the idea of if anything had ever happened in its natural course of time with our age differences, that where would I be in life? And, you know, and the idea of having a piece or some semblance of Richard that might come in the form of a child was appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Now that's interesting, yeah. Yes. A uh, continuation of your your relationship Yes. in having a family, which is just such a normal thing that happens, right? Yeah. Right. It wasn't right. about procreating to carry the genes, yeah. which is what a lot of our uh, heterosexual friends have talked about, hmm. right? In some ways, I've heard that spoken by many people. But for me, it was about the idea that there would be some part that I would not be so alone mm-hmm. in the world, maybe. It sounds sort of odd uh, to say, but... Well, I guess you had to kind of think about it in a different way than women do or heterosexual couples do uh, when they make that decision. You had to really think about it because it wasn't going to be a, a blending of your genes in the way that you have with a heterosexual couple. Yeah, Sometimes, it, it, most usually, or whatever. Right. And it, it also wasn't going to be one of those things of, well... Do we want to have a child? It's a lot of responsibilities. Well, let's just see what happens, and if it, you know, if it happens, then we'll become pregnant and have a child. I mean, that yeah. we had to be very, very specific and planned, organized in order to do that. Yeah. And so, like Skylar said, when we made the decision, we also thought about, okay, you know, he's Chinese. I'm more, you know, I'm Jewish. Eastern European, and so we wanted to have a child that would have that those backgrounds and characteristics. And so, in the whole process of of planning, at the time when we started really looking into this, which would have been eleven, twelve years ago, because our daughter is now a little bit over, almost ten and a half. It sounded to me. Years, yeah. Yeah, like science fiction in the sense that there was a a way that uh, a woman could become the surrogate and she would have the sperm of the man and carry the baby. And those cases often resulted in the woman changing her mind. Mm -hmm. And because she was the biological mother of the child, She she could change her mind and didn't matter what kind of legal contract she would have. Uh, you know, she had responsibility. She had a right to raise that child. Sure. And so, the way that that we looked into this, that appealed to us, was to have both an egg donor mm-hmm. and then uh, a gestational surrogate. Right. So that way, the the egg donor would provide 
the the eggs that would create the embryo. Right. Um, but then the egg donors typically do not want to be part of the child's life. They may have different reasons why mm -hmm. they choose to be an egg donor. Sure. Um, and in our case, uh, there was a specific reason for, for that. And then we had gestational donors. So the egg donor represents both Skylar and me. In terms of, of your genetic well, I think makeup? The, the right. most difficult part of this process... Yeah. That sounds so hard to find. The most difficult part of this <laughs> process was really about finding the appropriate egg donor. Wow. And the most important thing was that uh, whatever we ended up doing, that this child represented some part of my culture and Richard's cultural background, ethnicity, uh, cultural piece. And to find somebody, so we found an egg donor. We were searching for an egg donor who had Chinese mm -hmm. background and maybe who also had the Eastern European background that right. was representative of Richard. And there are very few. Yeah. Asian egg donors are very hard to come by. And first it was like, oh, here's someone who's Japanese. Here's somebody who is Korean. Does that work? And I had a hard time with that. Mm. But we went with somebody initially, and then we were matched up with a gestational surrogate, and then that fell apart after we signed the initial paperwork. And then we searched again, and we had a negotiation issue with somebody who was a potential egg donor. So then that fell apart. And we thought, geez, maybe we need to look into adoption or other choices. But then it sort of took away from the symbolic meaning of what this was for mm -hmm. me, certainly. Right. So then we had a very close family friend offered herself up. Mm -hmm. um, and we considered it, and we moved towards possibly doing that. And then all of a sudden, one Friday afternoon, I received a phone call from the surrogacy agency. And they said, look, we have a woman who came in here. She's absolutely lovely. She's part Chinese, part European, mm -hmm. her family ancestry. And I think she'd be a really good match for you. Mm. So we're not even gonna post her information online. Here's her profile, we're sending it to you. Take a look and let me know as soon as you can. And we looked at it and we thought, oh my goodness. Here this she is. person is it. Yeah. She culturally is a mix of both of us. Her father was Chinese, her mother's family is, you know, European. Mm -hmm. And she resembled a little bit enough of her features that I could see myself and Richard being blended in mm -hmm. to be this woman. So I thought, oh, well, this would be a good match. We looked at height. We looked at all the different factors that were really important. It was it's, difficult. It's so, it's so complicated. <laughs> it is so complicated, indeed. That's why it sounded so sci-fi, you know, like what, what is happening here? What do you guys think about all of that in retrospect now that you're parents to an actual human being? Can I tell you, as pregnancy <laughs> happened... Any thought you have of when you find out you're pregnant, that's a huge joy. The first time we went, we tried doing this. We didn't beget, we didn't become pregnant. Right. So we had to then do it again through uh, frozen embryos. So when we became pregnant, the the joy was wow. No thought ever crossed my mind during the whole pregnancy of what is this child's future going to be like. All I could think about was like, please let her be healthy. Please let her be healthy. Mm-hmm. And that's all I thought about. I didn't care what she looked like. I didn't care what... Actually, we thought it was going to be a he. That's mm -hmm. what we were planning, because we, we'd speak about this you know, little, <laughs> little Richie that didn't exist. Uh, right. And then yeah. uh, when we found out we were having a girl, uh, we were not prepared. Yeah. Mentally or Mentally. emotionally for that. And it was like, wow. We're having a girl, not a boy. <laughs> but what are we going to do? We didn't consider that possibility. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> but now we can't imagine having had a boy. Yeah. All we, can, we, we don't know what we would do if we had a boy. And someone says to us now, she's like, well, what would my name have been if I were... And, and we couldn't think of any names for a girl that we liked. Mm. Ironically, you know, her name, Summerin, is the melding of our last names translated from its origins. Oh. coming together. My last name, Ha, 
My last name means summer, as in the season. Ah. Translated from its Chinese origins. And Richard's last name. Hoff has an, uh, a secondary the, meaning. Secondary meaning in German of being in, like I N N or in a, master something. A place of home or a place of. Oh, okay. Yeah. Roughly, so, it's it's a little. We took a little liberties there. A little, a little, <laughs> right, a little liberty right. there, but place that, of home. So we took summer and in, and when we combined it, we thought summerin. S O M E R Y N. Yeah. And uh, so her first name really is her last name. That's right. Translated. That's right. Except the opposite way around. Right. 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 Yeah. Exactly. So she's <laughs> she's summerin summerin. Ha 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 ha. Right. We were in exactly. a car. We were in a car with your daughter, and summerin, and summerin said, "No, Ava, Ava was saying how, you know, some people's last names are just sort of funny sounding when they're hyphenated," and summerin said. Yeah, can you imagine if my name was Ha Hoff? How horrible that would be! I'm so lucky that my parents' last names are Hoff Ha. And then your daughter says to her, she goes, "Yeah, but if your last name was Ha Hoff to begin with, you probably wouldn't think it was so strange." <laughs> She's very wise. Very wise. My sister is a part of our lives, and she is she's someone who I'm very close to, who in many ways has been another parent to me, and we thought it was really important that she be there as part of the process, so she could feel connected. And we had asked her initially if she she would be involved in helping to raise Summerin in some ways and providing that maternal figure, and also the cultural piece was、mm-hmm. very important for. For me, for us,、uh, to have that imparted onto her, and my sister initially said, "Well, I can't commit to anything, so you know you should really plan and make sure that you have everything in order." So, come Summerin's born, and my sister is very involved, and I can't imagine her not being. She loves Summerin. She was there at the birth. We invited her to be there with us.、Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, and and also, just to clarify, when、uh, you know we we knew the gestational surrogate, obviously, and so she lived、um, maybe three or four hour drive away from us. But we would be talking to her a few times a week, and then see her at least every month.、Mm-hmm. And so at Summerin's birth. Um, we, you know, we were there, and actually, so Summerin immediately is,、uh, you know, ours, and so、mm-hmm. both Skyler and my name are on the birth certificate because、mm-hmm. California was one of a few states that would allow that、mm-hmm. um, at the time because that was you know ten eleven years ago, and so like Skyler said, his sister was there with us, and you know, so all of her. Admonitions that okay, you you'd better prepare for yourself because don't depend on me to do this, that, and the other thing for you. Well, so now she does this, that, and the other thing, <laughs> and has been doing that for the last ten and a half years. Yeah, yeah、uh, so. that's nice. So it's a it's a real family unit with extra extra family as well. I do want to add one thing. Yeah, I want to add that.、Uh, so when we had the embryos, we both contributed. Uh, parts of our DNA,、mm-hmm. our sperm, and you know whatever took took. Right. And we figured that you know, whosoever it was, it didn't really make a difference. Right. And we've never actually talked to someone fully about her biology.、Mm-hmm. Right. And as far as she knows, in this moment, she is a combination of the two of us. Right. So that's a conversation. That we're going to have down the road at some point the, soon. The DNA question, yes, yeah. yes. That, you know, which of the two is the actual biological parent? Because it could have gone either way. Yeah, yeah,、absolutely. and we've left it sort of ambiguous in the beginning. Yeah, so interesting. Like, I'll never have that conversation with my kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to just turn a little bit to 
Summerin in the wider world and kind of social relations. When your daughter was in kindergarten, you wrote a letter to the other parents in her class to share information about how she came to be. Could you just uh, talk a little bit about that? Why did you send that letter? What did you, you know, what were you thinking about why you wanted to share that information with other people um, who you would be in relationship with uh, throughout the elementary years, at least, and what you want other parents to, with whom you interact to know about your family. I was really concerned about our child's environment. I was really concerned about where she was and how people might perceive her family structure, and how she would be treated as the child of a same-sex couple. Mm-hmm. Being a minority individual myself, being a gay man, I know I've had my own experiences right. of being an other, being different, and I wanted to make sure that my child, our child, had everything set up so that she would be embraced and not be seen as different and being bombarded with questions that made her question her own family structure as being anything other than the norm. Right. And, and I think, you know, we're very fortunate to live in Los Angeles and in California where there's a very progressive environment. We specifically chose a school that had progressive values. Right. And so the Willows uh, embodied all of that. And so we knew the environment as a whole in the, the state, the city, the school would be really, really positive mm-hmm. about you know the, the inclusion of gays. And then the question in the classroom arose specifically because one of the one of the, the children in the classroom was asking about how do you have two dads or where's your mom? Well, well then there's a, somebody we overheard or somebody overheard that, well, I think someone's adopted mm-hmm. um, because yes. that's how else could she be there unless she was adopted. So we figured, okay, we needed to, you know, she's not adopted. She's, you know, a child of surrogacy and the process that we just explained here. And so we didn't need to explain that in the detail that we just did with you mm-hmm. um, here, but we wanted to let parents know the basic story of who we are mm-hmm. and how Summer got to be here. And then, you know, we also acknowledged that it was there, it was up to them to tell their child whatever they wanted to about how Summer came into the world because who knows what you know, five and six year olds are being told by their parents about how they got here. You know, sure. the man, the woman, the sperm. Right. We didn't want there to be gossip or people talking about her parentage or how she came to be or about her. And we thought to ourselves, well, what's the best way to educate the children? We can't really single the children out and go speak to them. So we thought, well, maybe sending a, an email to the class mm-hmm. so that the parents had all the information and in the hopes that the parents would then have a conversation with their children about Summerin and about her family dynamics so that there would be more widespread education mm-hmm. about um, families that were different. Right. That's how that letter came to be. Right. So we try to do it as diplomatically uh, as possible. So you, you were trying to talk to the kids, but you, you went through the parents. Exactly. Right, right. And then the, the kids will hear from the parents at home about, you know, when the kids say to the parents, oh, how did... How do two, you know, men have a daughter or something mm-hmm. like that? Right. So, and so, what kind of reaction did you get? It was surprising. The reactions were very supportive, and people who we weren't necessarily close to responded. But more importantly, the, there were people who spoke to us about their own journey mm-hmm. of having children and things that they were very personal to them that people, including their own children, did not know about. Mm-hmm. So we were not alone in some ways, in our process. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It was, so it was de- very supportive and affirming. Very, very supportive. So I um, was wondering, as you've continued on this process, you've 
obviously been in many different situations, uh, probably gotten feedback from people, solicited and unsolicited. And I was wondering, what are some of the misconceptions that you've faced as two men raising a daughter? I think people think that we have roles. And I think the funniest one I've heard is, oh, so which one is the mom, which one is the dad? Right, and right. It's a little offensive, but people say it in in jest, in jest, right? So, when we really look at this, I think we both, we don't have a designated role. We both take on duties as shared parents who have jobs, who have to balance out who's going to do what. We both change diapers, we both do feedings. Right. And, and then we end up, I think, like every you know, couple that is raising a child, you know, one person ends up taking the child, being the transportation person, one person maybe is more joking, the other person might be better at dealing with the child's emotions, Mm -hmm. and one person might be better at math, one person might be better at another subject, so it just sort of, you know, it's not like we would assign each other duties at the beginning, you know, okay, day one, this is what you do, this is what I do. Right. I mean, it just all evolved. Right. It's it all evolved. Right. But we do have a little bit of different roles. I think, you know, Richard's mm-hmm. really good at the uh, playful parts mm-hmm. of the relationship. And I think I'm a little bit more in tuned to some of the emotional things that someone might experience but we both have a very hands-on role. I think when we have go, we attend school functions, we're one of the few families where both of us are usually, at least in the early years, present. Right. And that was important, I think, because we both we're both mom and dad. Yeah. And there isn't. It was a big deal for us when we have at school, you know, uh, Father's Day, Mother's Day, speaking to the teachers in advance about well, how do you handle this because she doesn't have you know, a mom, a mother figure, per se. Right, and she needs two cards for Father's Day. Right, (laughs) right, right. (laughs) And that's why, you know, once again, this school and this area of the country is so positive and progressive because within the school, that's you know, it's like, you know, it could be Father's Day, it could be the man in your child's life that's important. It could be a grandfather, it could be an uncle, it could be whomever. Mm-hmm. And the same thing for, you know, who's the woman that's important in your life? Mm-hmm. So that, you know, someone doesn't feel like, you know, she has to cover her head on Mother's Day. Right. Because she doesn't have a mother. Right, right. Yeah. Did it make you reflect at all on just gender roles in general? I, I, I think... You know, for a lot of women, you know, you have a conversation with your partner before you have kids <laughs> about, like, what it's going to be like. And then, you know, things just sort of, a lot of times, settle into these predictable gender roles. And it's a little bit uh, startling. And I was wondering <laughs> how you reflected on that, just sort of seeing that now as parents. For ourselves? Well, and That's also a, just looking I, around. For for me, it's like this immense respect for for the woman, for women, in the sense that, from what I've generally seen with friends and so on, that maybe the man works, the woman works. Somehow, even if they're both working outside the house in you know, jobs that call for them, it's typically the woman who still has more responsibilities. But I think there's definitely a gender rule even came up for us, with two of us. I think we went through, we were both working at a very active full-time jobs prior to Summerin being born. Mm-hmm. And then when Summerin came to be, we both made a conscious decision to take time off from our work, to be present in those initial months or for the remainder of the year. Mm-hmm. And then the idea was that Richard was going to maybe retire and consult and be the stay-at-home parent, and I would go back to work and be the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And he realized very early on that he was not going to be a stay-at-home dad. Three, it took three weeks, and then I knew I had to get back to work. He didn't have the makings of being a stay-at-home dad. He just didn't want that role, he realized. And then for me, I decided that I didn't want to go back to the job I had. Mm-hmm. And being a parent 
meant being available and present and being in a former career where I was on call 24 hours around the clock, seven days a week, just made it more difficult. Right. So there was a period of time where I ended up going, I, I changed professions, went back to school, but I also wasn't generating income right. like I was. And that was a huge shift for me in terms of what was my role in this family structure. Right. So in some ways, there was this feeling of feeling that I, some part of me was emasculated mm -hmm. by not having, being the breadwinner right. or bringing in an income and then all of a sudden taking on more duties as the, as the, uh, as, as the uh, parent who was present with our child, right, for a period of time. And I think there was a shift in our dynamics. There was an expectation that Richard had that he was the one working, that I was more available, that I should be doing. And I felt like, oh, this must be what women experience when they are not, when they are the stay-at-home parent. Mm -hmm. But here I was transitioning, endeavoring to go into another career, going back to school, a very full schedule. And I think we had a difficult transition yeah. of, 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 of discussions. I don't want to say fighting, but yes, fighting, having discussions about what our roles were. Um, and there was a feeling that I had of, oh, I've been placed in this little box of being the, 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 the female mm -hmm. counterpart equivalent. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I disagree with some of it, but it it was it was a dramatic uh, shift from what we had anticipated that we would do. And um, like Scott said, I think three weeks into having summer and then being, we were going to have a night nanny, and somehow because summer came three weeks early in the night nanny, we had talked with seemed rather flaky we were waking up in the middle of the night and then realized well we can get up with her in the middle of the night that's not that difficult and then after about so we were both were doing it in the middle we were both initially getting right. up all the time with her making sure that we didn't kill her by accident or you know and we would constantly be arguing because we'd be sleep deprived and finally someone says to us why are you both getting up only one of you needs to get up Right, right. So then we started doing that, but still, this you know, the sleep deprivation, obviously, for anyone who's gone through it, raising a child, which are you know, most mothers, you know, it's really difficult. And yeah. so then the idea of having being the stay-at-home dad with Summer just became really difficult. When she was three weeks old, I two of our friends came over, so I was with Summer and. And uh, these two female friends with their six-month and 14-month-old children came over. And I looked around and I saw these, these two boys, six months and 14 months, doing what six-month and 14-month-old children do. And I thought, this is never going to change. It's never going to get better. It's just going to get harder. And so that's <laughs> when I realized I needed to, to go back to work. And uh, so I do have a full-time job. However, it offers me a tremendous amount of flexibility. So it was a, a pretty good compromise mm -hmm. from what we had originally anticipated. Do you feel like your daughter faced any special challenges as the daughter of two men? Or do you foresee her facing any challenges in the future? I used to worry that because she didn't have, she would want a mom. Mm -hmm. and that she didn't have a mom. And there is no mom in her life. Right. There's a surrogate. And I think early on, she asked about that. I think early on, maybe around the age of three, she referenced something. And we talked about that. And that was, it was always a worry to me. Yeah. But recently, more recently, we had a conversation with her where we were speaking about uh, being different and being having a different family structure, being other. And I said, well, remember when you were little and what it was like to not have a mom and having two dads? She goes, I don't know what you're talking about. There's nothing odd or weird about having two dads. 
<laughs> no, she, That's not the same. <clears throat> it was it was in relation to her hearing loss and being different, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and trying to draw from an example of how she may have taken time to acclimate or assimilate mm-hmm. to adjust to the changes of being uh, have having two dads, a non traditional family structure, and to hear her say with such pride mm-hmm. and to be so indignant that I was referencing that having two dads as an example of what it's like to be different right. was really heartwarming to me. Yeah. Well, there was another time that uh, she was at a camp, a week-long camp, not a sleepaway, just a, a, a horse-riding camp. <laughs> so someone who's at a week-long horse-riding camp with about eight or ten girls from her school, and so Skyler and I had gone there because we wanted to bring cupcakes uh, for her birthday. So we did that, and so there was a girl there that didn't know us because she was in a different class at school. And so we introduced ourselves, Skyler, her father, and then I was over by this girl in summer and giving the cupcakes. She said, who are you? I said, well, I'm Summerin's other dad. And she says, she has two dads? And I said, yeah, she does. She, the, little, the girl's thinking, and then she says, Boy, I wish I had two dads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's the way it's, it's been. We've been really fortunate about that. Like Scott has said, it was a worry. But where we are is very safe. And we're involved with an organization that is national. And, you know, there are gay and lesbian parents all over the country. So if we were in Mississippi or Missouri or you name, you know, more than half the country raising a child... As, as gay parents, it would be, it would not be, you know, what it is here. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. so. I, think, I think speaking to someone early on about her, how she came into the world was really helpful in helping to normalize mm-hmm. and not have her see our family structure as being something that was an anomaly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also, when we were um, talking about getting pregnant having a child it turned out that three of our closest couple friends are heterosexual and each of them had a child about a year to 18 months before Summerin and then they also had a second child afterwards and so those were the people that we would always hang around Mm -hmm. and so it wasn't that she was raised in a completely gay environment. We have plenty of gay friends who were involved in her life, but also heterosexual friends mm-hmm. and, and families. So it was all mixed and it was all, you know, so I think all that normalcy yep. made helped to make her feel that this is, you know, who she is and there's no discrimination. There's plenty of books that are out there that she can read about, you know, gay families. So we did all of that. and. Yeah, And that was also part of the thing about, I think, when you asked earlier about uh, her school and the letter we sent out, mm-hmm. it was also about the fact that we realized, oh, wait, we were the only same-sex couple uh, in her grade. Mm-hmm. And we, despite the fact that the school may have been progressive, we also wanted to ensure that we had control over what def- information was being disseminated so that people were educated and informed in a way that was going to be embracing yeah yeah so I asked you about challenge special challenges that she faced do you see any special opportunities for her because of your family structure that's a really good question I don't know if there's special advantages a lot of love (laughs) yeah I think she comes into this world really with two parents who really desired and wanted to have her. Yeah, you guys had and to work was, really hard at it. it. We really did. We had to work really hard. We had to plan a lot. And there was a lot involved. Um, changes in our lifestyle. Our, our lives were dramatically changed. And as well as, you know, there's a financial component too mm-hmm. that's involved. So I think anybody who questions how much we might want have, have wanted a child, you know, can see that of the things that we've been through. I think it's it's made her very aware of 
a family structure. So we go to Provincetown once a year. There's a, a gay family week in Provincetown, uh, Cape Cod. And so we've been going there with her for a number of years. And so a few years ago, I, we were sitting there having waiting for Skylar to bring lunch to us. And I asked her, so let's just guess who these people are. Are they families and who's with who? And so as we walked, looked around at the people that were walking there on the street, you know, we would guess that, oh, there's uh, two moms and those are their one or two or three kids. And, oh, there's a heterosexual couple and they've got a few kids. And there's, oh, that looks like a single mom, that looks like a single dad. So I think it's given her a sense of family as definitely much broader mm. than the traditional mom and dad and two kids. Right. I which think, is which is like tradition, which is kind of like typical only in our heads, right? Because right. if you look at the demographics, <laughs> yes. Yes. that's not the typical family. It may be the stereotypical family, but it's Absolutely. not really the typical family. I think the opportunity for her is to see that there's a community of people who have contributed to her growth, her development, her well-being, that we don't rely just on a nuclear mm-hmm. extended family, really a biological family necessarily, and that there's more community involvement because our family extends beyond the ones that we're born into, but those also of our friends and the people around us who have contributed because we are a different family structure, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Yeah, and both of our families have generally very much embraced embraced her mm-hmm. and, and us, you know, having a, a child. And those include some people who are more conservative, uh, less conservative. Uh, so it's, it's broadened their view on, on family and mm. who can raise a child. And right. So you've, uh, you've affected the, the broader community in terms of helping them think about what family is. And I think that will impact how she looks at people and relationships as well right so you talk about opportunities yeah yeah your daughter is in fifth grade and recently moved to a new school that provides special services for children with hearing loss i know that you've talked with her about difference using your own experience as gay men and would you talk a bit about how you've used your own life experience to talk to her about her hearing loss well, certainly for me, what comes to mind as you, as, you meant, as you ask this question is not so much about talking, but more about relating to her. Mm. So, and that's been really helpful to me. She came home one day from school and she was admiring her hair and talking about how wonderful it was like it was, it was to see her hair braided and held up and her you know, face and ears fully exposed. And she started crying randomly about not being able to wear her hair this way. And here I was thinking, oh, here we go again. It's the, it's the uh, preteen, the emotional piece coming out and, and not understanding like what this is all about vanity or what, it, what, is this, what are the tears about. And as we spoke, she, I realized she was telling me that she wasn't able to be fully expressive and fully be herself because she had to wear her hair down partially to cover the hearing devices that she was wearing so that she would not be singled out, she would not be noticed for having them. And I thought to myself, well, that's really odd. Your school is very embracing. Everybody knows you have hearing devices. Uh, does Does anybody treat you differently? Does anyone bully you? Does anyone make fun of you? Her responses were all, no, no, no. And I thought, so, I don't understand. We've worked so hard. We've talked about this. She says, I don't think anybody remembers because they don't see the hearing devices because my hair is covering them. I said, everybody knows. Mm-hmm. She says, well, they forgot. And as I was listening to her emote and cry and, and really see the pain in her face and hearing her, her cries, seeing her tears, it made me realize, oh, wow. I relate to this. I relate to what it must be like to be other and to be different. As I mentioned earlier, I'm an 
gay male. I'm a Asian minority immigrant who came here when I was five. And despite the fact that you, everybody might be fine with how you are, they might know you're gay, but they don't talk about it. They might, or you try to hide that you're different, mm. uh, trying to blend in, trying to assimilate. The fact that my parents might speak to me in Chinese in public was horrific because mm -hmm. I didn't <laughs> want that attention to be drawn. Right. Or me being aware that I would have to control my affect, my anything that was that might come across as gay, so I could hide that, mm. right? Was a part was a sense of shame that I carried from mm. being different from being other. And I thought my child was speaking to me as though she were an oppressed, marginalized individual. Mm -hmm. And I realized in that moment that the depths of what she was feeling. Right. And it allowed me to be more empathic towards her, to speak to her in a way that she felt understood and cared for. Because you could understand her experience through the filter of your own experience. Yes. So I think that the fact that she was the only child with wearing hearing aids at a school with 450 kids, she felt very different. And so we were able to, there is this excellent school that was geographically close, but the, one of a kind in Los Angeles, where uh, they mainstream children with moderate to severe profound hearing loss. So about 15%, maybe 20 to 25 kids out of 175 have hearing aids, cochlear implants, and the school embraces them. And it's part of what they project to the community because they want to be inclusive. And so for the children who go there who don't have hearing loss, which is the vast majority, they know that there are children there with hearing loss and they're all connected and there's special efforts that are undertaken, special programs for those children, opportunities for the children with hearing loss. Mm -hmm. But it's all part of the school and it's an important part of the school and they're embraced. So I, she's feeling much more connected and being able to be forthright with her hearing aids. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, her her different family structure has not been something that is odd for her or different for her. It's yeah. such a normal part of her life. She doesn't see the differences. So we've actually had to work towards informing her mm. and educating her that her structure is different. So I just wanted to wrap up with a question. What are some of the values that have been important to you that you want to pass on to your daughter? Great question. Skylar and I are fortunate. We still are very much in love with one another. And so I hope that she sees that we have a generally healthy relationship. We argue and we try to keep it pretty positive in the arguments and that they're not, yeah you know as positive as we can and that she sees that we can argue but then we can make up we can talk about it and you know it's not perfect but you know we do the best that we can so that she sees that there's a a normalcy in in disagreeing with somebody and loving them at the same time right a healthy relationship a healthy relationship is about being able to speak about disagreements to have an argument, but also to have a discussion that can lead to a resolution. Right. That conflict doesn't have to be something that's always seen as being bad and having, right, being complicated, but that there's healthy discussion, healthy expression of emotions. Right, um, and you can, you can maintain respect and right. those things. Right, and that she doesn't live in an idealized world and relationships aren't, you know, aren't idealized. It's, there's lots of different components to it. I think that Skylar and I do have similar values overall about respecting people, respecting differences, uh, where people come from. Um, and it's not whether they're high socioeconomic or 
they're poor or they're fabulous in one way or another. It's just that, you know, who people are, that is is what she needs to to look at and to be kind to people. Social justice is, I think, the word that comes to mind. I think that uh, for for us, it's important to impart values of of being kind and being inclusive. And I think because of our different family structure, it's important for us to talk about. Um, you know, Richard works in the nonprofit world, and I'm a therapist, and being kind to people. Uh, being respectful and just social justice all around, right? Especially in our times today. Mm-hmm. And also, then this is a really difficult one. She's really privileged. She has great opportunities. She goes to um, now a second, really excellent, you know, private school. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, you know, her vacations just. There's so many opportunities she has that I wish that all children would have, but I at least want her to understand that she's she has these advantages and that she's privileged. And there's a certain responsibility that comes with that to to care for people who don't have those same opportunities. Mm-hmm. And work ethic is also really important. I mean, coming from an immigrant family uh, and also having worked really hard in my life, for all the things that I've, I've attained, I think it's important for us to impart to her that she also needs to have be socially conscious, to work hard, and also to understand her roots and how she came to be. Right. And the struggles that my parents went through, that I have been through, to and Richard has been through, right? We've all been through uh, with our specific dynamics and family structure to create this opportunity for her mm-hmm. and how she can then appreciate it and maybe in somewhere in the future, you know, give back in some way right. with that awareness and understanding. Right. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming in to share your story with me. Appreciate that. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Richard and Skyler, for speaking with me about how you made your family and how it has broadened the conception of family for others in your life. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real with Diane McDaniel wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know why you listened and what you like about the Real podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. Follow Real on Facebook at Real with Diane McDaniel, and on Twitter at RealThePodcast. Reach us at RealThePodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. Thanks for listening.